All right, everyone. We are here for our March Family Prayer Sunday School Catechesis and for the presentation of some very important documents to Miss Sarah and Rachel Legros. And is that really how your name is spelled? Interesting. Okay, so uh, for six chief parts, you learn the six chief part by heart and can recite it, the primary text and explanation beginning to end, you receive certificates of completion. So, certificate of completion is presented to Sarah Legros for the Lord's Prayer, confession in the office of the keys, and the sacrament of the altar. You have to come up here, though. You have to shake my hand. And don't leave. And also to Rachel, the Lord's Prayer, confession in the office of the keys, and the sacrament of the altar. You have to shake my hand. And then we have to pray, okay? Lord God, Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for the gift of new life that you gave Sarah and Rachel in the waters of holy baptism, and the nurturing of that life through their catechesis and faithful reception of the small catechism Continue to guard and keep them from every assault of the evil one throughout their Christian life until you called them from this veil of tears to receive the crown of glory that never fades away. Bless them in all they do and say to the glory of Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Okay, girls, thank you. Congratulations. Zippity-doo-dah, they were in a month or so time, those three. All right, so we have that uh, recorded also. That's good. And we're going to be covering five lessons this evening. Um, you don't have all of the material on all of them yet, but you will, when I get it done, Sherry will zip it off to you. Uh, we start out with the temptation of our Lord, which is the first Sunday in Lent. Matthew chapter 4, and we'll go right to that text from the Bible. The traditional gospel reading for the first Sunday in Lent is the temptation of our Lord because the 40 days of Lent um, are patterned after the 40 days of Jesus' sojourn uh, in the wilderness in which he is subject to every human limitation and weakness, hunger, thirst, fatigue, calloused feet, <laughs> and, and hands. He was a carpenter. Um, every human limitation. And he is called to live by the good and gracious word and will of his Father. He is then called to be what we in Adam failed to be. Adam was called to live by every word of God and by the will of God, but he fell away and turned away. Jesus comes, and in our stead, he does what we are unable to do. 
So the 40 days of Lent are Ash Wednesday uh, through Good Friday minus the Sundays. And they're patterned after this 40 days. We looked at the baptism of our Lord. It was one of the church year stories the first Sunday after the Epiphany. That began his public ministry and immediately following his baptism where he's designated the Lamb of God, he's driven out into the wilderness to be our scapegoat, the one who, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, look at the text, verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And remember a temptation, what is it? Every word or will or inclination or desire that says to us, you can't trust God, all right? Which is what the devil was saying in the garden of Eden. You can't trust God. He's withholding good stuff from you. All right. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. And the number 40, you know, we think about the 40 days and 40 nights of the rain falling, time of Noah's flood, or the 40 years in the wilderness of the children of Israel after their worship of the golden calf before they enter into the promised land. The number four is the number for the earthly things, you know, the the four winds, the four corners, and then 10 is a number of God's providence always in the Bible. So four times 10, 40, those numbers do have significance in that regard. So he was hungry. Uh, One of my uh, friends, Pastor Cleavy, considers this divine humor, you know, 40 days and 40 nights without food, and afterwards he was hungry, which is sort of like, duh, I guess, okay? Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Well, first of all, he is the Son of God, but he is the Son of God who has become man for us. He need not prove who he is. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Okay, this first temptation in Jesus' answer takes us right back to the Garden of Eden. We were dependent upon God's word for everything, for life, for food, for sustenance. Remember, you may freely eat of the trees of the garden, right? God's word said that. But of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For the day you eat of it, you will die. So if you, by God's word, they're given superabundance, but by God's word, they're also prohibited from that which is not good. So you see how the devil is right on the same theme here with Jesus. Take that which God has not given you. That is essentially what the serpent was saying to Adam and Eve. Take what God has not given you because he's actually lying to you. What he has not given you is good for you. Okay? No, the man of faith says, what is good for me is only what God gives to me. Even if I'm quite hungry right now and have nothing to eat, I'm not going to eat that which God has not given me. Notice how that fits in with our own life experience. Uh, In our, I mean, it's as old as the hills, but I mean, in our day and age, we just want people to be happy. So take what you get, grab what you want, seize the day, 
even if it's something that's not what God has given you in his word. Okay? So it's the fundamental temptation. You can't trust God. You can't trust his word. He's a liar. He doesn't love you. He's holding good things from you. Okay? But Jesus counters, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And in that response, and he is uh, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, remember he is speaking about himself when he says man does not live by bread alone. It's not that he isn't speaking to us, but when Jesus is speaking this word to the devil, he's talking about himself as the son of man. You follow? I live not by bread alone, but I live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Of course, it applies to us too. But the most significant thing is he is applying this verse to himself, countering Satan's temptation. Do you follow that? Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, same intro as before, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So now Satan, I mentioned in Sunday morning's Bible class, who is the greatest theologian that has ever lived other than God, and it's the devil who knows theology, but is warped and twists the theology to serve his own self-centered ends. Notice what he does. He now uses God's word, but twists it. And he's quoting from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And in the temptation here is this assertion made by the devil. If you trust God, then you will never suffer. So what is the devil getting at then with that temptation? If you trust God, you will never suffer. Well, where is, yes, that's right. He's on his way to his passion as the Lamb of God. Okay? So, God is a liar, you see. If you suffer, then he's a liar. So, he shall give his angels charge concerning you and... In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. It's not the promise of no suffering, but rather the promise that the angels will protect you from stumbling in the midst of suffering. So it's interesting, where were the uh, two times identified in the Gospels where the angels ministered to Jesus? And when they're ministering to him, they're ministering to him with God's word for the strengthening of his faith. The temptation in the wilderness and Gethsemane, right, when he is suffering. I mean, he's suffering here in this 
humiliation is not the same uh, intensity of the suffering of the cross, the passion, but it certainly is when you're deprived of basic necessities of life, uh, it can be, over a long period of time, extremely painful. You know, I mean, you realize how fortunate we are to at least, for all of our lifetime, live in a country where we are not being invaded by Russia or some other foreign power that's trying to conquer us and in so doing, you know, destroying cities and everything that makes life, you know, livable. It's misery. Okay. Then uh, Jesus replied, you shall not tempt the Lord your God or put the Lord your God to the test. Uh, here again, he is applying that verse. While, while it applies also to us, it's from Deuteronomy 6, he's applying it to himself. I will not put God to the test. Now in the Old Testament, this putting God to the test, it's what the children of Israel did at the Red Sea. Were there no graves in Egypt that we, you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? That was the confession of mistrust, of unbelief, not the confession of worship. And in so doing, they were putting God to the test and kind of daring him to damn them. Okay. So he applies it to himself. I will not accuse God of falsehood. I will not accuse, accuse God of doing me wrong. You see this then in Psalm 22, which we pray every year at the stripping of the altar on Holy Thursday, Maundy Thursday night. Yet I trusted in you. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet I trusted you when I was on my mother's breast. And it's a, it's a great psalm that fully acknowledges the suffering, at the same time fully confesses uh, faith in the Lord. Okay. Verse 8, and again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me, which is what the devil wanted Adam and Eve to do in the garden. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Okay, what is Jesus doing here? All of these things I will give you. We speak as Christians of redemption. That Christ came to redeem us, to purchase us back from what? Sin, sin the bondage to sin, which leads to death, separation from God and the devil and his power. Adam and Eve sold the creation into slavery. Christ comes and by his suffering and death redeems the creation by the shedding of his blood. So what Satan is offering Jesus here is there is no need to suffer for the redemption of the world. I will give it to you if you will fall down and worship me. Okay, so a way to redeem apart from the suffering. 
So if you're going to insist upon suffering and not put God to the test, the second temptation, then I'll give it to you without suffering. Just worship me. Which, of course, is separation from God, which is what all three of the temptations are tempting us to. You can't trust God. Without faith, we're separated from God. And so Jesus is the quintessential man. He is what Adam failed to be. He is the man of faith, depending upon God for everything, even in the midst of his suffering and death. And by enduring that, he worships the Lord his God. So verse 10, which is Jesus quoting from, again, Deuteronomy 6 and 10, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. He's applying that to himself. Again, it, it, it applies to us, but he is confessing that of himself as the one who worships his God. Yep. So if Jesus would have worshipped Satan, the world would have remained with Satan regardless, right? I mean, like... Yeah. So, so like, the temptation is kind of moot. Like, it's, it's like, right? I understand it, but I, I think like if he would have succumbed to that temptation, he wouldn't have been given all of his kingdoms. Well, they would still they would have still been in bondage. So right. it was a it was a lie. It was a false claim. I mean, he would have been in bondage, and the world still would have been in bondage. Okay. But the thing to emphasize here is that. Um, in his state of humiliation, he sets aside his divine power and glory and knowledge, and he lives by faith. So the child Jesus is learning and growing in stature and in favor, which is quite a, quite a, fascinating mystery. He's without sin and he learns and he grows in stature and in favor with God and men. How is that possible? He's in the temple at 12 years of age, both listening to them and asking them questions and they are astonished at his wisdom and his knowledge. Uh, Not because he was poof, instantly born with that, but it was a wisdom and knowledge that came upon The man, Christ Jesus, who is also the Son of God, but is in a state of humility, comes upon him through the instrumentality of his mother and earthly guardian, Joseph, who followed all of the prayers and the catechesis and the synagogue worship and the reading of the scriptures. But he gets the advantage of receiving that, I guess you could say, from a state of being without sin as opposed to us receiving it. But, But he grew through the word of the scriptures outside of himself and the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the angels and so forth. So he's being sustained um, in his faith. And so you could, I, I often say it this way, if the Lord Jesus needed the word of God and prayer, how much more do we? Okay. Now we've got some basic, um, so the basic theme of trusting in God, the devil's a liar, that's a good one, uh, and 
that temptation is that voice that says you can't trust God. And that the defense, the, the, the source of faith is God's word, and the defense against Satan is God's word. Those are some really simple assertions to be made for small children, you know, when it comes to temptation. Okay, any uh, questions there? So the prayer on this lesson is, O Lord Jesus, since you defeated Satan for us by enduring every temptation and by going to the cross on our behalf, strengthen our faith in you as our Savior so that we rely upon your word alone when we are attacked by the evil one. And uh, there is, you can discern Sherry's taste in art by looking at the choices made. No, she brings them to me to look at too. And so we commiserate. He's just really a creepy dude, isn't he? And in my study, if you go in there sometime, you can see the uh, drawing that Andrew did uh, from an image out of the Passion of the Christ, which um, shows Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with the image of Satan. Oh, and uh, uh, notice the, term, uh, the name. I, I don't think I put that in the notes for the devil. It's Satan. What does Satan mean, that particular name? Accuser. Accuser. And what the devil did in the Garden of Eden and with Jesus in the wilderness is he accused God. He couldn't accuse Jesus of sin at this point. He had no sin of his own. I mean, it was imputed sin, but he's accusing God, just like in the Garden. He doesn't love you, the accusation against God. God is a liar. All right. Matthew 15 is the Canaanite woman. I um, feel like in a state of deja vu, I should tell you all, just listen to lesson such and such from Didache where we went over this. But it is one of the catechism stories and... uh, fits well uh, for the Lord's Prayer, its introduction, its first petition, or any of the Lord's Prayer. But it is uh, assigned on the second Sunday in Lent because it happens to be the gospel for that Sunday, even though it's often used with catechism. Okay. Who knows the Latin title of that Sunday, the second Sunday in Lent? Huh? Reminiscere, which is remember me from the introit. Okay? All right. Matthew 15, 21. Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region. So is she a Jew or a Gentile? Gentile. Gentile. And she cried out, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. So she clearly confesses him to be the Messiah and her Lord. My daughter is severely demon-possessed, and she cries out for mercy. So it is a proper prayer. Her faith is in him. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. 
But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she's not of the house of Israel. So he seems to agree with the disciples who want to send her away. Then she came and worshipped him in response to these treatments, saying, Lord, help me. That is a brief and fervent prayer. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Essentially calling her a little dog. And she said, True, Lord. So she agrees with him. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. One of the things I want to mention that is seldom mentioned here, but Pastor Ken Weeding developed it in a sermon once upon a time, is how the affliction, in this case the demonic affliction of a member of the family, had an impact upon the other member of the family, in this case the mother. So it, it shows how the sins of others or the spiritual bondage of others affects us in, in marriage, in family, in the church. So her prayer is, Son of David, have mercy on me. Okay, When a child uh, departs from the faith, it is a grievous, not only sorrow for the parents, but a grievous temptation for the parents to also apostatize. You see this all of the time when uh, I don't want to lose my child, but if I remain true to my faith, I might lose my child. You know, you think about some of the evils that are afflicting um, people today. They fall prey to whether it's uh, this gender dysphoria business. Um, you know, if you don't, if Hannah decides she wants to be Hank. You know, then the parents, oh, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to turn her away, so I'll embrace that, and in so doing, you lose. You know, so if that, were, if that were to happen to someone, you could say they are severely demon-possessed or afflicted. <laughs> My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Have mercy on me. You see, see the, I, I'm trying to give you a practical implication today. So, and it's not that she isn't praying for her daughter when she says, have mercy on me, but they're, they're yoked together here, and both are in need of God's mercy and Christ's salvation. Okay, so that's um, a little application. All right, uh, Central thoughts. God's promise of salvation has always been for all people. And so going back to that intro for this Sunday, remember me, O Lord. The prayer of a penitent, which we'll hear about in the sermon tomorrow from Nehemiah, it's always acknowledging one's total unworthiness. 
So the treatment that this woman gets from the disciples and from Jesus, Jesus permits and subjects her to, for our benefit, to reveal to us the nature of true faith. Okay? And, and what is the nature of true faith? Well, does it place any confidence in self whatsoever? Not, none. But rather, uh, claims the status of simply being a sinner. So when Jesus calls her a little dog, whoop-de-doo, that's not as bad as being a poor, miserable sinner, is it? So she agrees with him. Uh, in our experiences, it seems as if God is not listening. You know, send her away, she cries out after me, and he, he says not a word. But faith lays hold of Christ and the promise of the gospel. Remember me, Lord, remember me. And um, then this business about uh, this test reveals that she knows the faith when he says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, he came to the Jew first. Jesus descended from Israel and he came to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. So to the Jew first and then through the Jews to all nations. That's the pattern. So his words here reveal the content of her faith. And it also indicates that, that God gives salvation without partiality, even though it seems to be that it's with partiality. Okay. So, true faith trusts only in Jesus and his word. It does not trust in what it sees, experiences, or feels. True prayer is the voice of faith which claims the promises of God's word. True prayer always confesses one's unworthiness and trusts only in God's mercy in Christ. And, uh, ah, there she is. She's got her hands folded. So I like that picture because it's the posture of prayer on her knees, hands folded, and looking up to Jesus. Now, remember what he said at the end, O woman, great is your faith. The, the picture illustrates her faith. Her faith is great because her faith is in Jesus. Okay, so the object of faith is why our faith was great. Oh, woman, great is your Jesus. Oh, woman, great is your Savior. That's what he's saying. Because when he says, oh, woman, great is your faith, let it be to you as you desire, and your daughter was healed from that very hour, she's not going away saying, oh, wasn't my faith awesome? Wasn't my faith awesome? No, no, no. It's, isn't my Jesus awesome? Okay. And then I like, of course, you got the, send her away. She cries out after us. Yes. I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But the, the disciples were in for a shocker when Jesus healed this Canaanite woman. Okay, now comes um, Daniel in the lion's den, and you don't, have, you don't have any written notes yet. But which picture do you like? Maybe I should show it to you now and then show it to you at the end, but here's... Number A and number B. I know. I, my professor, Dr. Bungus, did that. Number A, number B. Anyway, 
Should you like number A or number B? And for those of you listening at home, uh, letter A looks a little bit more like a cave, and Daniel's looking up, and the lions are sort of a little more snuggly toward him. And uh, letter B, there's more of a formal door up at the top, and uh, Sherry said his posture is more like he's in prayer, and he's not quite as close to the, to the lions. Yeah. Any comments? I vote for B. You vote for B? Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't look like a king. <laughs> yeah, he looks he more looks kingly, more I suppose. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, it's in Daniel chapter 6. All right? And let's go to Daniel 6. And this would be for the third Sunday in Lent, but it gives us a narrative for that Sunday which is Okuli, my eyes are ever on the Lord. That's for Daniel in the lion's den. My eyes are ever on the Lord. So pay attention to those introits uh, in Lent when these, because they, they tie in to the theme. And certainly Daniel's eyes were ever on the Lord. There's so much we can learn from Daniel the more we find ourselves in a post-Christian world. Okay? Uh, and so Daniel's posture in the post-Christian world, so to speak, do you know your sequence of books in the Old Testament? Isaiah, Jeremiah, it's after Psalms. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. It's right before the minor prophets. Keep going. Jeremiah. Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. It's the fourth of the four major prophets. Daniel is serving under Darius at this time. Um, and the king of Babylon. And because of his gifts from the Lord, the other civil ruler underlings uh, were envious of him, jealous of him. Just as they were jealous of Jesus because of his gifts. He spoke with authority and not as the scribes and Pharisees, but it was not a boastful authority. It was an authority that directed them to his Father in heaven. So Daniel spoke with authority, the authority of the Lord and the wisdom that God gave him. And even though he is a foreigner, he serves uh, with absolute faithfulness in the empire. So it would be the Persian Empire, actually, this time. Okay, so... In verse 4, it says, The governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. You know, like some treasonous thing or unlawful thing in the kingdom. But they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. 
nor was there any error or fault found in him. So the men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So we have the, the case in Finland right now, civil case of hate speech. Uh, and on trial are the Lutheran bishop of Finland, and we're in fellowship with that church body. It'd be like their president, Harrison. He's on trial for hate crimes, along with a doctor, I forget how you say her name, Ryzen or... Uh, She's a medical doctor and a devout Lutheran who wrote a pamphlet about biblical marriage, sexuality, and family. And because she spoke what the Bible spoke about, um, you know, heterosexual marriage and against same-sex unions, um, she and the bishop, since it was published under his office, charged with hate crimes. So it's, it's gone to trial. Sometime this month there should be a ruling on the case, whether she and the bishop go to prison or not. Okay, So they could avoid prison, couldn't they, if they renounced and revoked what they had written. Just like Dr. Schultz from Concordia could have his suspension lifted if he revoked his criticism of wokeism on the campus of CUW because it hurt the feelings of those who practice it or advocate it. And that should have a familiar ring because Luther could have avoided the death sentence from the emperor and been relieved of excommunication if he had simply one word, revoco. Okay, so that theme is as old as Daniel and before then. So that's what it means by whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So the king, and now now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. I believe part of the significance of this is if you wondered, I mean, that's a weird thing, huh? That you would have a law, the, 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 the standard of the law of the Medes and Persians is once the law is made, it cannot be revoked, which means then you cannot like torture the king to death to uh, revoke uh, an order. It is what I have written, you know, I have, I have written. Therefore, the king, king Darius signed the written decree. And it isn't it interesting, there's a parallel, I was thinking about it, with Pontius Pilate. Um, and the chief priests come to him, and they demand his that he sentenced Jesus to death. And what do they say to Pilate, finally, in the end, that, that pushes him over the edge? If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who speaks against um, 
or anyone who would do this is, you know, speaks against Caesar. They accuse uh, Pilate of treason if he doesn't crucify Jesus. And as if they were loyal to Caesar. The Jews? Are you kidding? The high priests? The Sanhedrin? No way. It's the same thing here. They, they have no allegiance to Darius whatsoever. Okay. It's amazing seeing these parallels with everything you need to learn is in the passion. So Daniel knew that the writing was signed. When he knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since early days. So he didn't deviate from his custom. And that he gave thanks. Uh, Second commandment stuff. We should fear and love God so that we do not despise No, that's the third commandment. Uh, His name, but call upon it, you know, you satanic arts, liar to see about it, but call upon his name in every trouble. Pray praise and give thanks. In all things, give thanks. So he gives, you think about it, he gives gives thanks for the opportunity to pray and confess his faith under threat of death. (laughs) See how strange and bizarre the Christian faith is. But that's it. Are you going to say, David? I, just, I like the, the principle is, like, well, what do we do if things get really bad? Well, we do what we always do. That's right. That's right. Because we already do. That's right. All right. So uh, then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Now, speaking of due regard, did they have due regard for the king? No, because they're depriving the king of his best counselor. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. It is almost like Pontius Pilate also, who tries desperately to set Jesus free. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the law cannot be changed. It is a picture of the necessity then of Christ's death. He had to go to the lion's den so to speak. So the king gave a command and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke saying to Daniel, your God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. This is one of the many instances down through um, biblical and secular history where because of the unique 
faithfulness and service of Christians for the sake of a nation, humanity, or what have you, that they garner respect from unbelievers or others. I have not found one so faithful as you. Well, why is that? Well, it's because of his faith. So in the St. Peter option, sanctify the Lord in your heart and always be prepared to give an answer, a reason for the hope that is within you. That's very important because why do we do what we do as Christians? We do what we do as Christians for Christ's sake because of our faith in him. Okay, so you see this byproduct of Daniel's faithfulness in how the king is desperate not only to save him, and when he can't, he says, your God will. He has helped you before. Your God will. I think about um, King Agrippa, who appeared. Uh, Paul was imprisoned in Jerusalem, then he was taken to Caesarea, and he was two years there uh, when Felix was governor, and then Festus takes over from Felix, and Paul is still there, and he wants to do the Jews a favor and release Paul into their custody, but Paul isn't going to have it because he's a Roman citizen. He appeals to Rome. And then King Agrippa comes. He's one of the Herods. And uh, Festus says, Paul, your, your, your much learning has driven you mad. But King Agrippa says at the end of Paul's speech, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. It's a great scene. It's Paul's passion, if you will in, in Luke, uh, Luke's Acts of the Apostles. And Paul says, I, I wish not only to almost, but to completely persuade you uh, to be just as I am, except for these chains. I don't wish that upon you. All right. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. Okay, if you think of the stone that was rolled over the uh, tomb for Jesus, you should. And as the king sealed it with his own signet ring, you know how you, did you ever do that, Hannah? You wrote a letter and you put some, melted the wax on and then put a, you've never done that. What kind of a mother do you have? <laughs> You're older too. Did you carve pumpkins? Yeah. Okay. Matthew never carved pumpkins. Our, our son. Because he was five years different in age from John, and by the time the older he got old enough, the older kids had kind of grown out of the pumpkin carving, and he just kind of missed out on it. A deprived child. Yeah. All right. Well, the signet ring. So he seals, seals it with his ring, and probably would have had some kind of uh, molten uh, metal or something. Uh, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. So the gods, or God, would have to intervene. Otherwise, according to the law, he is condemned. And so you have that same thing. You know, in Jesus, the law cannot be changed, the necessity of his death. According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, he must go to the cross. But the God whom he serves is able to deliver him, isn't he? So you see in Daniel a picture of Jesus. 
Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. So that's his personal Lent. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, as opposed to the Persian gods and deities of the pagan world that were dead and lifeless. Servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, and this is an amazing thing, O king, live forever. The guy who signed the decree that resulted in him you know, being cast into the den of lions uh, prays for the king to live forever. How shall we then live in a land of exile? You know? My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Um, remember what Jesus said to Pilate? You know, if I have spoken evil, bear witness to the evil. If not, why do you strike me? Well, not to Pilate. It was to the soldier in the court of the high priest. But Then the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. So his innocence is justifying innocence, the innocence of faith. We're justified, we're declared righteous, innocent by faith. No sin is imputed to him uh, for Christ's sake. All right. Um, and then uh, that's the way, that's where I have it ending for you. But I do like this decree uh, in verses 25 through 27. And in verse 24, the king gave the command and they brought those men who had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions. Them, their children, their wives, and their, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Isn't that cool? Then King Darius wrote, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Sounds like the Apostle Paul. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has power, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. What a fabulous confession of faith by Darius of all people. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. How about that? Belshazzar. Is it the same? No. Name? Belteshazzar is the one that Daniel had. Daniel had. And then Darius and Cyrus. Yeah. 
So was the king converted? Well, that's a pretty... Um, that's a pretty orthodox sounding confession there, isn't it? It is. Yeah. So I'm willing to grant it as a possibility, very definitely. Okay. And notice, Daniel did not convert the king by grabbing him by the lapels and smacking him around. You know, long live the king. Sir, how, it, this, there must be something to what he believes if he is willing to face death joyfully and in thanksgiving to God and still serve me in the process? I mean, compare that to the uh, self-absorbed, self-important little men who wanted to, out of envy, kill him. You know, or compare, either Jesus is a lunatic and an insane man, or he is the Son of God. I favor the latter because what lunatic preaches the things that he preaches? You know? That's why, by the way, liberal, quote-unquote, scholars have to um, say that Jesus didn't say things that he said. It's fabricated. Because if eyewitnesses actually heard him say and do the things that he did, including rise from the dead, well then it makes the liberal, quote-unquote, scholar an idiot, which they are. So which one is it going to be, A or B? Still B? Still B? Still B? Okay, there you have it. I was really, I was really torn. Okay, let's go to <laughs> Exodus chapter 16. And this is the Sunday, Letare Sunday, uh, which has the uh, feeding of the 5,000. But we take up a parallel Old Testament account from Exodus 16. The manna in the wilderness, bread from heaven. And so this would take you back after the crossing of the Red Sea and before they arrive at Mount Sinai. Oh, and then we have two choices for you. Number A, which looks like all these Israelites camped out in tents and you can see them gathering the manna. And then you have a little bit more close-up intimate one here with the mother and a baby and the children gathering the manna there. Any thought yet? Well, you can think about it. Okay, so they journeyed from Elam and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Verse 
This corresponds with our first story tonight of the temptation. What is at the heart of their murmuring? Doubt, unbelief, yes. Yes, faithlessness, doubt, unbelief. What is the devil doing? Accusing God. Their murmuring accuses God. So what you said about doubt and unbelief, that's, that's all true. But in it is an accusation against God. You are not caring for us. See, that's, that's what you need to see. Just like the devil is asserting, hey, he doesn't love you, so take matters into your own hands. Turn the stones into bread. So they murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So this verse 3 expresses the desire to want to return to the flesh pots of Egypt. Was it really that good for them, though? They were in slavery, right? Yeah. They weren't sitting by Moses eating and drinking. Then why do so many people prefer the path of unbelief and the bondage to the flesh versus repentance and faith in Christ? It's easier and it appeals to the appetites of the flesh. I know what you're saying. You know, weren't they suffering there and so forth? But it wasn't easy in the wilderness. And if you go to the land of Midian, if you were to go there today, I mean, it's, it's, it, you can't go there today because it's in Saudi Arabia. You know, it's on the, it's on the uh, eastern side of the Gulf of Aqaba. And it's, it's just, I mean, I don't know. There's hardly any vegetation that grows there. So, if you have a theology, a prosperity gospel, Becca, believe in Jesus and then there is a great um, Lutheran satire, by the way, where they have uh, martyrs, <laughs> icons of martyrs where they make their mouths move with quotes from uh, Joel Osteen. <laughs> All these prosperity gospel kinds of quotes of Joel Osteen and tweets in the mouths of the martyred saints. It's hysterically funny. So but the point is, see, sometimes we're given this impression that if you become a Christian, then life will be easier for you. Well, it actually may be harder, you know, um, as evidenced with the, the, the Canaanite woman and the daughter that was severely demon-possessed, or Hannah that wants to be Hank, and then what do I do? You know, it's a lot, in this life, it's a lot easier to embrace Hank with the pronoun he and him than it is to stand against that. So remember, the Egyptian bondage is a, I shouldn't keep using that example. <laughs> It's making your mother uncomfortable. <laughs> um, it's, 
it's a paradigm for the bondage to sin and the corruption of the flesh. And wanting to go back to Egypt is this pull, this tug of the sinful nature, the old Adam, to return to its old ways. All right. Uh, then the Lord said, uh, oh, you, you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your murmurings against the Lord. But what are we that you murmur against us? We're nothing. Your complaint is against the Lord. Also Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your murmurings which you make against him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your murmurings. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Now, I'll pause here. Remember he said, putting them to the test to know whether they will walk in my ways or not. Test in the Bible is always to reveal faith, okay, or unbelief, whichever the case, what the faith of the heart is. So that's what the test does. Again, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So this is a nice story to be in contrast to Jesus in the wilderness when Satan is accusing God, but Jesus remains steadfast, relying only upon what God gives without murmuring and without complaint versus the children of Israel who grumble and complain and accuse God as Satan did in the temptation of Jesus. Um, furthermore, however, do they deserve to be fed? No. So what does he do for these unbelieving, ungrateful, murmuring scoundrels? He saves them. Boy, thank God, I'm not like they were. Get the point? Okay. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. 
And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Manna, which means, what is it? That's what manna means. And then the final verse is verse 31. And the house of Israel called its name manna. What is it? And it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. So it is sweet to eat what the Lord gives in faith and bitter to eat what the Lord gives when it's received in unbelief. The same thing that the Lord provides can be sweet or bitter depending on the faith of the heart. Okay, So your wife can be either sweet or bitter to you depending upon the faith of the heart and the attitude that flows from that. How about that, Jody? Or your husband could apply the same sort of thing. Okay? What faith gives is contentment in the Lord, even though you don't have much of anything. So St. Paul says, I have learned to be full and I've learned to be empty. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is, um, as I said, parallel to that gospel on that Sunday of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in the wilderness. Okay? And in both instances, the point of the miracle is what? Well, to, to, yeah, to trust in the Lord and not in self. And he is the provider of the bread of life, a bread greater than any bread that this world has to offer, even though it might not seem like much or quite insignificant. All right. Um, so there's the bread from heaven. We'll have some more notes from you on that soon. And the final lesson... Oh, oh so which one do you like, by the way? The, uh, you like A... The multitude or the intimate ingathering of the bee. You like B again, huh? Yeah. If, uh, if A was bigger, I would probably go with A. But... Nobody else is. You're the only one speaking, Jason. Then I would go with B. Yeah. <laughs> I like both of them. I don't know which one I like more. You like A? I like A. Because it's this whole big encampment. Yeah, they don't look like grumblers here, I must say that. But the potential for... That's because they've already been fed. Yeah, they've already been, yeah. <laughs> All right, so it's called Sherry's Choice. <laughs> All right, and then finally, um, this would be... Uh, Genesis 22, for Utica, 
Judge me, O Lord, and plead my cause. There's the intro. Uh, Genesis 22. And the sacrifice of Isaac is a, a type for the sacrifice of Christ, where Abraham, the father of many nations, is a picture of God the Father who offers his son, his only son, whom he loves upon the altar. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You can see the picture there. Um, the father's hand upon his son, and then he's got the knife. And then you do see the ram in the background that ends up being the substitute because Isaac is a type for Christ, but he's not the real thing. A dramatic thing about this story is that Abraham was called to faith when he was 75 years old, It's 25 years, a quarter of a century, when he's 100 years old, when Isaac is finally born. And then when he is of age, like he's 12 years old or something like that, now he's told to take this son. So now this is 35, 6, 7 years since the initial promise. The son's finally born, and now he's a young lad able to carry the wood. Now... Now sacrifice him. Okay. So it's a a dramatic picture. And in the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 11 of Hebrews, it talks about um, how Abraham offered up his son Isaac, believing that God would raise him from the dead. It's Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. And I want to take you to, I'll go ahead and take you to it for the quote. It's, Genesis eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises, remember the promise, in you, Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, accounting or reckoning that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense." So 17 through 19. So how things have changed. By this point in Abraham's life, when the Lord tells him to take his son and sacrifice him, he does so with absolute faith in the promise. All right. If he dies, he shall rise from the dead because the promise of salvation is through Isaac. Okay? And that comes out in the narrative When you see these themes, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. 
He said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Think of John 3.16. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. So the third day, even the ancient book of Genesis reminds you of the day of the resurrection. Okay, life, which is life out of death. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. Now listen carefully. The lad and I will go yonder in worship and we will come back to you. He's not blowing smoke there. He believes if he dies, yet shall he live. He has to live because it's through Isaac. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And the two of them went together. That verse 8 is the climax of the narrative in my view. Because he doesn't simply tell his son, my son, God will provide the lamb. But he, in the reflexive pronoun, God will provide for himself the lamb. In other words, the lamb that God demanded, the sacrifice that God demanded, God himself will provide. See how richly gospel that is. Uh, So they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Now notice, he didn't tell him to climb up there. He took him. He bound him. You know, Jesus was baptized. Jesus was crucified. Isaac was circumcised. Isaac was uh, laid upon the altar. Jonah was thrown into the water. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So here, this test reveals the faith of his heart. And it wasn't just a generic faith in the Lord. Like, take your son, your only son, Micah, and execute him. Except there's a problem. You're to trust God, yes, but Micah is not in the lineage of the Savior and the seed through which salvation is promised to all. So I don't think it's quite, I mean, we should... Do anything that God asks of us. But what I need you to see here is this ask has everything to do with the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel. Do you follow that? So what is revealed in this test is that his faith is in the gospel, that promise of the seed, Isaac, and the descendant of Isaac who would bring the salvation uh, to the world. Okay. Okay. 
And he, uh, then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. There's vicarious sacrifice. So the ram is offered in place of. So that theme is, is all over the, the Old Testament, um, that atonement language. And I think it's, it's instructors that Isaac isn't finally killed. He may be a type of Christ, but he isn't finally killed because there is only, excuse me, there is only one man who can be sacrificed for sin. And that is the greater Isaac, Christ. And Abraham called the name of the place, wasn't I strong in my faith? As it is said to the, oh no. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. In the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Yahweh Yirah. The Lord will provide. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. So why did he do it? What was his doing a sign of? His faith in the promise. In blessing I will bless you. In multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's my phone buzzing over there, isn't it? Okay. So... Yeah. Um, yeah. I write in the meditation, Mount Moriah is likely then the location of Solomon's temple, which comes later. So you have notes there for you. Any questions on this? I'm running out of fuel, so to speak. Do we have, oh yes, we have the picture here. I already showed you that. If there's no further comment, we'll close with prayer, okay? Heavenly Father, as you strengthened Abraham's faith to trust in your promise of salvation alone and the death and resurrection of your son, so teach us to suffer all, even death, rather than fall away from Jesus, whom you provided in our place as the only sacrifice for sin. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, one final thing. The prayers for the Bible story try to capture in prayer, succinct prayer form, the central themes of the story. They try to do that. Maybe not always successful, but that's the, that's the hope. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>